I love that part. Our God is faithful to me. To me. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Strong Tower. It's good to be with you today in the house of the Lord. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're our guest, we want to welcome you again. Uh, we're glad you could be with us today. Uh, as was said earlier, if you want to get to know us a little bit more, you could fill out the Connect card. We would love to follow up with you, pray with you, or uh, the first Sunday of the month, starting next month, there will be a uh, opportunity for you to get to know folks at what's called the Welcome Party. We're starting that up this fall. Uh, we're excited to have uh, lots of new people wanting to get connected, so we're trying to make a way for you to do that, okay? First Samuel chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10, 1 through 10. Hear the reading of God's Word. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired, hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord, or for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, learning to pray again. Learning to pray again. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us in it today. That as we gather together today, you are here by your spirit speaking in your word. And so, God, we ask that you would make us listeners, hearers of the word, that we would receive what your spirit has for us today, that we might then go out and be doers of the word. Help us to become people of prayer. Let us pray. But because of what you've done, may that move us. And so we pray your Holy Spirit would change us today, transform us into the image of Christ for his glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hmm. 
sir, could we, could we hear your testimony later? Amen. Amen. You're good. Thank. We appreciate your testimony. So, if you're with me, follow, follow along for a second. The world would never be the same after September 3rd, 1967, at least for Sweden. And now, this is over 40 years ago, but what happened was the country was bracing for what would be a radical change, a radical transformation that was going to happen in their society. What they were going to do was maybe the unthinkable today, but they were going to change from driving on the left side of the road to the right side of the road. They're going to go from driving on the left side to the right side after driving on the left side for decades. And so you could imagine that kind of change, that kind of transition would be an immense work, right? They, they had to spend millions and millions of dollars of trying to, to change everything that goes into driving. They had to change every sign on the road. They had to update all their public transportation. They had to make sure people knew this was going to happen and get the word out. So millions and millions of dollars were invested into this moment, and that day would come on September 3rd, and they planned it out to where it would be at 4.50 a.m. in the morning. 4.50 a.m. in the morning, they were told, everyone was told to stop your car and slowly move from the left to the right. And there's actually a famous picture where you could see everybody trying to do this at 4.50 in the morning and, and all the cars are all, you know, blocking the road and it's, it looks like straight chaos. But they were told to move to the other side and then at 5 a.m., traffic would resume. If you could imagine for a moment, that was, that was a major transformation where now they went from the left to the right and everything changed. They had to relearn how to drive. They had to relearn every single turn they were used to making. They had to relearn all the signs that they had become familiar with. They had to relearn everything that seemed so small and insignificant was now changed. In other words, it was the same because they were still driving, yet it was completely different. This, this is what has happened in our world, I think. We are now living in a world where everything has changed. right? Thankfully, we don't drive on the left side of the road now, but everything has changed in just a few short years. right? We've gone from, in just a few short years, to everything seeming like it's similar, seeming like it's the same, but it's actually changed drastically. And it's things that, that feel like they shouldn't be that difficult, right? Things that are, are, are small but really significant. Things like our sense of time or our mental health has changed or the way we connect with one another. And all of these things start to pile up in our life in such a way that it can be very disorienting. It can cause a lot of confusion in our life. It can cause a lot of chaos in our life. Because now we have to relearn basic things. We have to relearn how to connect with people and have friendships. And so because we're trying to relearn that, so many people right now are struggling with loneliness and isolation. People are struggling with depression and despair. Right? We're trying to relearn what does it mean to, 
to talk to people? What does it mean to be in person with people? What does it mean to, to be present, to pay attention? What does it mean to notice our emotions? All of these things are happening at the same time, and they're, they're causing some disorientation in our heart because we're relearning what should have been basic. And one of these things is prayer. It's prayer. I mean, maybe you remember back to a time, maybe it was just a couple years ago, maybe it was decades ago, when your prayer life was thriving. Or maybe, maybe it was at least better. We, we won't even use the word thriving, but it, it was better. It was better than what it is today. You remember back on a time where, where maybe you just actually prayed. Maybe you had conversations with God that you remember being honest conversations. You had honest conversations that you had an intimate relationship with God. You had consistency in your life. You, you had moments where you were really pouring out your heart to God. And you can look back and you can say, man, at some point in my life I can see that. Or maybe you're new to Christianity or you're trying to figure out and, and that's something you really desire. You, you desire a life of prayer. You desire a life where you have a real, genuine connection with God. And then chaos hit. And our whole world changed. All, all your rhythms changed. Your, your work and your job changed. Your, your kids uh, and, and their reality at school changed. And everything in your life has sort of been flipped upside down. And now it seems similar, but it's all different. And so the question I want to look at today is, how do we pray in this new world? How do we actually connect with God in this world of chaos that's so disorienting? That's what I want to look at today. So we're continuing our series today in the book of First Samuel. We started last week, so if you're here for the first time today, you didn't miss much. You just missed one week. Uh, but we are in this book uh, probably till Christmas because it's a longer book. And if you look at the book, actually, First and Second Samuel are originally one book. So in our, in our Bibles, they've split it up into two smaller books. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's originally one book. And when you look at the book, it's fascinating to realize that it actually has bookends of prayer. So the book begins with Hannah's prayer right here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and then you go all the way to the end of 2 Samuel, and 2 Samuel 22 ends with David praying. And so the book begins in prayer, and it ends in prayer, and it's almost as if the whole book is just a prayer being answered. The whole book is this invitation to us to pray. And so last week we looked at Hannah as she was praying to God and she was pouring out her heart before the Lord because she was in trouble. She was in anguish, right? And she's taking her pain to God. And we looked at how uh, what that's called in the Bible is lament. And God invites us to lament. He invites us to share our pain with him because he can handle it. But now this week we notice that Hannah didn't just pray about her past. She prays about her present. She prays about her future. In fact, you realize Hannah's whole life is covered in prayer. And so what I want to look at today is what can Hannah teach us about prayer? Because Hannah lived in a world that was turned upside down, and yet she prayed. She prayed. And so that's what I want to look at today. Uh, what can Hannah teach us about prayer? But let's begin with the first thing. It's the centrality of God. The centrality of God. If you're taking notes this morning, that's the first point, the centrality of God. Look at me at verse 1 as she begins to pray. Verse 1, it says, And Hannah prayed... And said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. 
My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Now pause there for a moment because you've got to back up and realize that Hannah has been praying for years now. Hannah has been dealing with the shame of not having children in a culture that only valued women if they had children. And so here she is living years and years with, without having an heir that she could provide to her family. And so she's living with this shame. And not only the shame, she's living with this uh, ridicule and, and, and uh, you know, cursing from other people that are saying, you're worthless, you're, you're terrible, uh, you know, just pouring it on her. And so now she's coming to this point where she's at her bottom. She realizes that I can't do anything about this. I have to take it to the Lord. And she brings it to the Lord. And what does he do? He hears her. He hears her prayer. And the Bible says that he remembers her. And then he gives her a son. He gives her a son. And so now she, when we find her here, she's gone from her lowest low down into the valley up to the mountaintop. And so when she began praying in chapter 1, she's in the valley. Now in chapter 2, she's on the mountaintop. And so in verse 2, she gives this triad of nuns, if you want to call it that. There, there's just three in a row. It says, or she says, there's none holy like you, God. There's none besides you. There's no rock like you. In other words, Hannah had tapped into something that she realized had more power than she could ever have. She realized that her situation was worse than anything she could ever handle. And so she prayed. And when she prayed, she realized, now I've come in contact with a God who not only has the power to transform me, he has the desire to intervene in my life. Yes. Yes. Let's pause there for a second, because power without desire creates callousness. Right? If you've got power, but you've got no desire to do anything to help someone, you now become callous towards that person that's in need. But if you have the flip and you have desire to help somebody, but you have no power to do anything about it, you're useless. You're useless. And Hannah comes in contact with a God who has both power and desire. Power and desire. And this is what makes her say, this God is holy. This God is unlike anybody else. That's what the word holy means. It means uncommon, unique, unlike anyone else. He's set apart. And so Hannah prays. She prays because she realizes she is not at the center of her story. God is. See, prayer, listen, prayer begins with God at the center. With God at the center. Eugene Peterson, uh, who I will probably quote a lot in this series because he's one of my favorite authors and he wrote a fantastic commentary on this book. Uh, he says this about the situation. Listen to what he says. In a world in which God is the primary reality, worship or prayer is the primary activity. In worship, we cultivate attentiveness and responsiveness to God. Cultivate because if we live by mere happenstance, looking at what is biggest or listening to what is loudest or doing what is easiest, we will live as if God were confined to the margins of our life. But God is not marginal. God is foundational and central. The person who lives as if God sits on a bench at the edges of life, waiting to be called on in emergencies, is out of touch with reality 
and so lives badly. You hear that? What he's saying is God is at the center of your life, whether you realize it or not. He's at the center of your life. God, God is central. And so because he's central, God is, is writing a story in your life because he's at the very center of your life. And so what I want to say as we pause here for a moment is that means that your life is not a collection of accidents. Your life is not a collection of random events or, or decisions you've made that were good or decisions you've made that were bad. It's not, it's not a collection of things that, that just happened by chance. Your life is a story. And what that means is God is writing a story that just like any other story in your life, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And just like any other story, it has a context, it has a setting, it has main characters and background characters, it has tension in the story, it has resolution in the story, there's different scenes in the story, there's seasons in the story, there's all these different elements that come into the story, but here's the point, that God is central to that story. Because what's unique in, uh, in our life about God is God is both the author of the story and he's the main character of the story, if you can see it. If you can see it. See, busyness is what keeps us from believing that's true. right? It's hard to believe that God is at the center of your life if there's other things that are consuming the center of your life. Right? It's what Eugene Peterson said in the quote. He calls it these three things, the biggest, the loudest, and the easiest. The biggest, the loudest, and the easiest. And so, what, in other words, what, what that means is there can be things that come into your life that now the biggest problem in your life, maybe it's a relational problem. You've got an issue with your spouse or the, the guy you're dating or, or some person at your job, whatever it is, now there's this big conflict in your life, and that big issue is now taking over everything else in your life, and so you can't see God because you've pushed him to the margins. Or maybe it's the loudest thing in your life, right? Which might be, you know, cable news channel you watch. Pick whatever one you want. They're all crazy. Or, or it might be your social media feed, whatever it is, right? You're scrolling through, and it's now the loudest news story in your life that has become this thing that is central. It's central, and it's pushed everything to the side. Or maybe it's the, the desire you have to make something easier. And so you're just constantly looking for, how can I get out of this trouble I'm in? How can I get out of this difficult time or these circumstances I'm realizing are, are bad for me? Whatever it is, if God is, is anything in your life, he's now a background character who you call in at some point when it gets too terrible. Prayer happens. Listen, prayer happens by noticing God. That, that's where it begins. It's just that simple. It's what my friend uh, Steve Machia calls practicing a preference for God. I love that. Practicing a preference for God. What he means by that is, is you just slow down and you say, you know what, God, I'm going to prefer you in this moment. Yeah. It's a practice you can add to your life pretty simply. It's, it's real simple. All you do is just pause and notice. It could take 30 seconds, it could take 30 minutes, but you just pause and notice. Notice, notice what you're feeling. Notice what you're struggling with. Notice what you're anxious about. Notice what's going on with your, your friends or your kids or, or your roommates, whatever it is. Just notice. Just pause and notice and watch. When you start to notice what's actually going on around you and what's happening in you, something happens. You, 
you begin to pray because you start to notice God. You start to notice God working in your kid's life. You start to notice God working at your job. You start to notice God working in your own heart about those things you're angry about or bitter about. And you just pray. But you have to pause and notice God. Just pause and notice Him. And when you begin to notice Him and you begin to pray, something happens that that we see here in Hannah's story. You you start to notice that it's really God's story. And so what I want to ask next is, what is his story? What, What is he doing as he's writing this story? And this is the second point, the story of God, the story of God. Hannah continues to pray in verse 4. Look at what she says. She says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Now pause there for a second. Hannah's story, we start to realize, is reflecting a larger story. It's reflecting something bigger that's happening. In other words, what she realizes is what God's done in her own life shouldn't be a surprise because this is the way that God works. This is the way that God works in all the world, in all the people. This is his story. And then so she starts to outline that for a moment. And and let me just kind of give you a quick summary because there's a lot of verses here where she's poetically showing the beauty of God's story. But it's, it's a subversive exalting of the humble and a humbling of the exalted. You catch that? So listen for the pattern. This is what she prays. She says, take down the mighty, or he takes down the mighty, and he strengthens the feeble. Uh, the abundant are now begging, and the hungry are now full. The barren has seven children, and now the women with many are now miserable. The Lord brings down, and the Lord raises up. The Lord makes poor, and the Lord makes rich. The Lord makes low the proud and lifts the needy. You see that? So she's comparing these two things. She's she's saying God's story that he is writing in the world is a redemptive reversal of all things. Of all things. Now, on October 24th, 1946, uh, there were scientists in the desert of New Mexico uh, who launched a rocket up into the sky. And this was uh, what they call a V2 rocket, I guess, that was launched up into the sky. And on that rocket was strapped a 35-millimeter camera that was set to uh, take pictures every second or so, every, I think it was a second and a half or something like that. And so it, it's, it's launching up into the sky, uh, you know, flying up above, and, and uh, it goes 65 miles into the sky, which the reason they had it go 65 miles is apparently NASA defines space as 50 miles above the Earth's surface. And so they wanted to get the camera all the way up to, into what we technically call space, and so they launch the rocket up, it goes 65 miles up into the sky, and then it comes crashing down right after that, hits the ground at 340 miles per hour and explodes, destroys the entire rocket. Nothing survives except a little steel case that had the film in it. And they open up, you know, as soon as they go and they, they look at it, they realize the film survived in the little steel case. And so they're ecstatic. They take the film back. They develop the film real quick. Kids, that, that's like what they used to do back in the day. They develop the film. They throw it up on a projector and they see for the first time in history a picture of Earth from space. A picture of Earth from space. For the first time in history, they could see the bigger picture of what was happening in our 
world. Listen, what is Hannah doing in her prayer? Hannah is praying bigger than herself. Hannah Hannah is flying up 65 miles above the earth's surface to say, I want to see the big picture of what God is doing. And when I get high enough and I see what God is doing, what I see is this is bigger than me. Notice in her prayer, it goes from the personal pronouns to now she's just praying the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It's not about Hannah anymore. It begins with Hannah, but it ends with the Lord because she gets high enough to realize there's a greater story of redemption happening around her. Hannah starts to realize that her story is Israel's story. Israel is going from barrenness to fullness. She starts to realize that her story is humanity's story. And what what humanity is struggling with in our sin, in our brokenness, is going to be fully realized and, and dealt with when God turns the world upside down. Listen, she says every place, every time, every nation, God is working to turn the world upside down. He's transforming the lives of the broken, the sinful, the lost, the the poor, the forgotten, the marginalized. God is moving into our lives to say, I'm here to transform it, to turn it upside down. Hannah is praying into that story. She's praying into that story. What, what I want you to hear is this. Prayer, prayer is about placing our story in God's story. It's placing our story into God's story. And unfortunately, maybe, maybe you've, you've heard this or, or, or realized this, all of God's stories start at the bottom. All of God's stories start in the wilderness or the desert. As Paul Miller once said, he said, God takes everyone he loves through a wilderness. God takes everyone he loves through the wilderness. You just go back through biblical history and you start to see God took Abraham through a wilderness. He took uh, Moses through the wilderness. He took David through the wilderness. He took Elijah through the wilderness. He took all of the people he loved, including Jesus himself, into the wilderness, and it was hard. See, what's, what's the definition of a wilderness? The wilderness is this. It's the gap between your hope and your reality. That, that's the wilderness. It's the gap between what you hope, what could be, and what actually is. That's the wilderness. And God is going to take all of us through wilderness places because that's how his stories begin. They begin in the wilderness. They, they don't begin on the mountaintop. They don't begin with, with celebration and rejoicing. They begin with lamenting and pain. They begin with difficulty. And so what is that wilderness for you right now? Where do you find the gap between what could be and what is? Because I think for a lot of us, you you feel that right now. If if you're not in a wilderness now, you're either coming out of one or you're heading into one. That's kind of how the Christian life works. And so some of you, you might be in a wilderness right now with your teenagers because school started, it's chaos. You're trying to figure out, how, how do I parent a teenager because they're not six anymore and they don't listen to anything I say? Or, you know, your, your hope and your reality are not matching up at all. Or maybe for you, it's, it's financial stress. And, you know, everything's more expensive right now and you thought maybe you'd buy a house or you thought you'd at least be able to pay your bills. And here we are. Here we are. And, and you're in the gap between hope and reality. Or maybe for you, you've been recently just in a really dark place spiritually. You're you're in a space where you know you, you don't even you don't even know how you got there. 
And, and the difference between your hope and your reality is so stark, you're wondering, who am I? How did I get here? How did I get here? Listen, that, that is the story of God. This, this is how God's stories work. They, they enter into the wilderness, they enter into death, and then on the back end, there's resurrection. See, God is not only taking us into the wilderness, he's taking us through it. His stories always begin with death, but then they end with resurrection. And so our lives are full of these many deaths and these many resurrections over and over and over again, all throughout our life. But the hardest part about the wilderness is you don't know when that's going to come. You don't know when it's going to come. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Right? You're, you're in the wilderness for God only knows how long. But here's what you do know in the wilderness. God is using that to shape you into the person that he wants you to be. He's using your wilderness to, to bring you into the place where now you are becoming the parent that your kids need you to be. He's using the wilderness to shape you and form you into the, the disciple of Jesus that, that your family needs you to be. He's using the wilderness to shape you and form you into the, the leader that the church needs you to be or, or your, your spouse needs you to be. Whatever it is, he, he's using that to change you. Yes. And so listen, prayer. Prayer is, is, is the, is the uh, effort, the, the practice of trying to answer the question, where am I in the story? Where am I in the story? Right? If God is writing this gospel story of death and resurrection, where am I in it? And so you start to pray and you start to ask God, where, where am I in the story right now? I want to give you another tool, just real practical, that can help you, that's been helpful in my life. It's, it's real simple, nothing, nothing phenomenal here. Just It's this, track your prayers. Track what you're praying about. You could use anything. You could use a a journal that you write in, or you could use index cards if you like prayer cards, or you could write it up on a bulletin board. You, you could do anything you want, but just track it. And all I'm asking you to do is just simply write down the things you're praying for, and as you see things happening, whether it looks like it's going well or it looks like it's going terrible, just write it down. And then when you look back over your life and you see how God is answering those prayers, you'll be amazed to see how the story is unfolding. Because what happens is, in the moment, it's hard to find where you are in the story. Yeah. It's hard to find, you know, it feels like it's never going to end. It feels like it's exhausting. It feels like I'm not going to make it. But then if you can kind of pull back like Hannah does and realize, no, this, this is a gospel story. Yeah. This is what God always does. God always turns the world upside down, and I'm just in that process. Yeah. But if you track it, you can see it. You can see his hand, you can see the thread, and you can see God is going to bring redemption here. God is going to bring resurrection here. And we learn to place ourselves in the story. And as we learn to place ourselves in the story, we find there's hope. And this is the last point. We look at God's anointed. The third point is the anointed of God, the anointed of God. Look at verse 9 with me. Hannah starts to close her prayer like this. He says, he, or she says, he, God, will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Now, what Hannah's doing is she is looking back on her past, 
And she starts to rejoice. She starts to give thanks. And then she looks to her present and she realizes God's ways are not her ways. And so she sees his faithfulness in the past. She sees his ways in the present. And now she looks towards the future. And when she looks towards the future, she realizes that God is going to bring a final victory. God is going to bring a final victory over all his enemies and over all evil in the world. He is going to wipe out evil, but the way he does it is not going to be through our might. She says it's not going to be through the might of a man that we prevail. It's going to be through someone else. And she calls this person the anointed. Look at verse 10. Look at what she says. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Eugene Peterson uh, says anointed might be the last word in her prayer, but it's not a conclusion. It's an anticipation. I love that. He's saying that this word is anticipating something about the story. It's anticipating what is coming. And so the word in Hebrew for anointed is Messiah. It's the same word that we would use for Messiah. And so usually this word in their context would be used for a king, someone who was anointed to kingship, who would then rule and reign over God's people, representing God to his people, right? So that was what the Messiah would be. But listen, Hannah prays this prayer when there is no king. Hannah is praying this prayer in the context of the book of Judges where it says there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so what is she doing? She's talking about a king, but there is no king. Hannah's praying more than she knows. Hannah, in a sense, is prophesying. She's she's looking forward to the day when there would be a king. She's anticipating the kingship of Saul that would come next, and she's anticipating the kingship of David that would come after that, and she's anticipating ultimately the anointed one named Jesus. See, Jesus, when he comes, his title uh, is, is Christ in Greek, but Christ is Greek for Messiah. It's the same word that means the anointed one. And so what she doesn't fully understand, she's praying. In other words, she prays even though she doesn't fully understand the story, she knows the end of the story. And that's the key to prayer. That's the key to sustaining, persevering, persevering prayer is that prayer knows the end of the story. See, Hannah's story is pointing towards the ultimate gospel story. See, like Hannah, there would be a barren woman named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth would, just like Hannah, be crying out to God, asking God to give her a son. And God hears her prayer. He remembers his promise, and he sends Elizabeth a son, and that son would be John the Baptist. And just like Hannah's son Samuel would make the way for the King David to come... Elizabeth's son, John the Baptist, would make the way for the king Jesus to come. And Jesus would be like David, but he would be even greater. He would be the son of David. He would be the true and better coming king. Jesus, like David, but even better, would be anointed to do what God had come to do. He would be anointed to take care of our sin. He would be anointed to to show compassion to the poor. He would be anointed to flip over society and say, you know what? The first will be last and the last will be first. Because that's his kingdom. That's his kingdom. He would come as the anointed one. And yet there's no king like Jesus. Because like any other, or unlike any other king, Jesus would go lower than anyone else. 
He would go lower than Hannah to the valley. He would go lower than you've been. He, he would go lower than me. The Bible tells us that Jesus emptied himself. The king of kings became the servant of servants. He took on human flesh and went down to the cross of Calvary. He went down for stripes on his back. He went down for a crown of thorns. He went down to carry our sin and shame, becoming sin for us, even though he himself was sinless. There's none like him. None could bear the sins of the whole world. None could satisfy God's justice perfectly. None could be like our suffering Savior, Jesus. And yet out of the lowest of lows, in the grave for three days, God would place him in the highest of heights. It looked like the story was over at the cross. It looked like his enemy had won. It looked like sin and death had the victory. But God would turn it around. God would turn it around. Early that Sunday morning, he got up. And God would bring life out of death. He would bring hope out of shame. He would bring despair or bring hope out of despair. He would bring victory from sin. God would exalt his son, Jesus, giving him the name above every name because that's the gospel story. That's how the gospel story always works. It's always a redemptive reversal in God's story because we know the end. We know the end of the story. Let me try to make it plain for you. Football season is starting Football, some of y'all, you're despising that. That's okay. We still love you. But football season is starting, and I promise this will still make sense. When football season starts, I get excited because I love watching football, even though I don't know all the players anymore because I don't have any time to follow all of it. But I still love football. And one of my friends a couple years ago told me that when he gets ready for football season, he gets a little sad because his team wasn't very good. And he said that uh, instead of watching every game, he realized what he could do was record the games on his TV. And then what he would do is after the game's over, he would sit down at his TV. Uh, instead of starting at the beginning, he would go all the way to the end, and he would look to see what the final score was. And if the final score was a winning game, he would sit down and watch it. If it was a losing game, he would just turn on something else. Because he didn't want to watch them lose. He didn't want to watch a losing game. But if it was a winning game, he would sit down and watch. And so one of our other friends said, well, isn't that boring? Why, why do you want to watch a game? You know the end already. And he said, no, that's not boring at all. Because now I get to sit down with my chips and just watch and see how they win. Because in, no matter how bad it looks, no matter what trouble we get into, no matter how difficult the other team is, I know the end of the game. And when you know the end of the game, everything is good. Everything is good. We only watch winning games. In Christ, every game is a winning game. In Jesus, every game is a winning game. Because he's already won. He's already won the victory. He's already conquered it. And so we look forward to the coming king because he's already come to win the victory for us. And what does it look like to pray? It looks like this. Repentance and faith means I stop making myself the center of the story. And now I turn to Jesus and I make Jesus the center of the story. Jesus becomes what he already is, which is central to my life. He becomes the author and finisher of our faith. 
He becomes the one who writes the story, stars in the story, redeems the story, and gets all the glory for the story. Because that's who he is. But if you can pray like that, it'll radically transform your prayer. If you can just start with noticing him and then realize there's a story happening here. And the story that he's writing in my life is a gospel story. It's a story where he has already won. He has the victory because there's none like him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, there is none like you. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. You are the rock from which the water flows. You are the one who is struck on our behalf for our sin, for our guilt, for our shame, for all of our failures. And yet you conquered all our enemies. You conquered them not through might, but through weakness, through death, through the cross itself. And so, Lord, in, in such a subversive, strange reversal of, of fortune, out of death comes life. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to really believe that story, enter into that story, pray that story. Open our eyes to notice you. Open our eyes to see how you're writing that story in our life through deep pain. That even though we have the victory in the future, and even though we have great hope against hope, it's still hard. And so we're still invited to lament. But out of our lament, may you bring celebration. May you bring the good news of a gospel story. God, we ask that you be lifted up in this place, that your Holy Spirit would work into our hearts the truth that's in your word. We pray in Christ's name.